Being born again is the target of much scoffing, derision, even ridicule. For example, some of you perhaps have seen the bumper sticker, born right the first time. That's a slam against you. A recent Christianity Today article by Professor Matthew Barrett of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary starts, being called a born-again Christian can mean many things to many people. For some, it means you are a Bible-thumping fundamentalist or a political conservative. For others, it means you were converted to Billy Graham crusade. Countless stereotypes have created endless confusion. So, so what is it to be born again? I have uh, even noticed that Christian surveys divide responses by those who claim to be Christian, evangelical, or born again, as if being born again is a different category than being a Christian. As I read those surveys, it seems born-agains are considered uh, the most conservative of the lot and sometimes the most ignorant or, or backward, and so many shy away from the term. But here is a question for you to consider this morning. Is there such a thing as a person, uh, as, a, uh, as a Christian, who has not been born again? While the term has fallen into disrepute, can you be a Christian without being born again? If so, what does that look like? We call it cultural Christianity. I, I think for some the idea is, yes, I'm a Christian because I, 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 um, I live in a Christian nation. I, I, I go to church whether I need it or not. I was raised in, in a Christian family. I've always been a – think of that one. I've always been a Christian. I, I do good. I, I follow Christian principles. I do unto others as I would have them do unto me, et cetera, et cetera. But this being born again is just way too radical, way too fanatical. And yet, being born again is one of the Apostle John's favorite terms or concepts. He uses it uh, more than anyone else. For example, in, we find in the first chapter of his gospel, John chapter 1, he writes, but that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, notice, to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, meaning not born into a Christian family, not of natural descent, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, you're born supernaturally. So to be born again is to be born of God. Notice John says to, be, to become children of God. This implies, critically important, that you were, you were not a Christian, you were not a child of God, but then you became a Christian. Always concerns me when I talk to people who say, well, I've always been a Christian. No, no, you haven't. So how? By being born again, born of God. Further, Jesus thought it an important concept. 
Many are familiar with the, the fam most famous verse of the Bible, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Th this, uh, th that comes during a discussion that Jesus was having with a guy named well, Nicodemus, a significant religious leader of the Jews, Jesus even called him the teacher of Israel. If anyone had this religious thing figured out, it was Nicodemus. Well, he'd heard about Jesus, his healings and his miracles, and, or his teaching and his miracles. So he came to see Jesus one night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, heard about your teaching, for no one can do these signs, these miracles that you do unless God is with them. We, we pick up the conversation. Jesus answered, cut right to the chase and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? He's thinking only in the physical. Don't miss that. Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of uh, the Spirit, born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. So if you cannot enter the kingdom of God without being born again, it seems a rather important concept, no matter how Many view the concept today in a condescending fashion. So what then does it mean to be born again? The, the Apostle Paul uses a different term. He uses the word regeneration to speak of this being born again. Regeneration is defined as the transformation of a person's spiritual condition from death to life through the work of the Holy Spirit. It means to be made alive. He says so in Titus chapter 3. He saved us. This is how we, we got saved, right? Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. In other words, not by our good works, but according to his mercy. That is, he didn't give us what we do deserve, namely hell, by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit. Same thing. Whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, that's different from mercy. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, N namely forgiveness and divine favor, so that we would be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There is so much there that talks about what this being born again, what this new birth, what, what happens to a person when he is saved, not according to our, our, our works of righteousness, but by his mercy and grace by which we are justified. That means to be declared righteous, notice, by the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is Paul's way of saying born again, new birth. Here's the idea. We, we are born physically the first time and spiritually the second time when we are born again. The, the, the first time into a physical or biological family, the second time into a spiritual family, the first time born dead. I want you to get that. That dead in trespasses and sin, but born alive 
spiritually the second time. You understand, back in the Garden of Eden, when God said to Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of this fruit, on that very day, you will die. They ate ate the fruit. Did they die that day? Yep. They died spiritually. And every one of their descendants are born spiritually dead. Concept is clearly seen in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in, trespass, in your trespasses and sin. Who is you? Who, who, who is that? In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all, there's the answer, who? All. Li- um, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, as a consequence of being born dead and only pursuing sin, we were by our very nature objects of wrath. It's what we deserved. Even as the rest, even as everyone else. So that was our miserable, deplorable condition. But God, two of the most important words in the Bible, but God, when we were helpless and we were hopeless, in fact, when we were dead, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our uh, transgressions, he's building a case against us. He made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. He caused you to be born again. So regardless of how the world views this concept, this being born again is actually how we become a Christian, meaning there is no such thing as a Christian who has not been born again. I know we live in the Bible Belt South, and I know you can talk to lots of people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and you ask them why, and they say nothing about being born again. Nothing about the gospel. There has to be a point, you see, in your life when you were dead. Again, concerns me when someone says, I've always been a Christian. No, no, no you haven't. There, was, there had to come a point in your life when you realized you were dead and, 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 and that you needed Jesus and you were made alive. That's important. So what if, if being born again is so important, what is it? How do we do it? Hold on to that question because it's a very important question. Is being born again something we do? Can I tell you that in the Scripture you are never told to be born again? It's never a command. We find the idea of being born again or born of God in our continuing study of 1 John. He uses the phrase twice uh, in our text. Look at it with me. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5 say this. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is better translated, as the ESV has it, has been born um, of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a very familiar but a most glorious truth. 
John here clearly says that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and whoever is born of God then overcomes the world. This paragraph is critically important to understand this being born again, as much as we're jettisoning the term today, what it means to be born again, how it is accomplished, and what it does. In fact, those two things form our outline. How are we born again? And then secondly, what are the effects of being born again? John, John starts this last chapter of his letter by dealing with the person of Jesus. This has been a challenge throughout the book. In some way, we know the secessionists had either denied the, that Jesus was the Christ or denied that He was the Son of God or denied that He had come in the flesh. So throughout this letter, He affirms and reaffirms over and over these, indis- listen, these indispensable truths of the Christian faith. Christianity, don't know if you noticed, Christianity, you shorten it, it's Christ. Christianity has as its center Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And if Jesus is not the focus of your Christian faith, you're missing it. He is, he's the center. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh to take our sins in his flesh and die as the propitiation for his people, to be the atonement to pay for our sins and meet the demands of divine justice. He's the only one that could do that. You could not. You were hopeless and helpless and dead. So John says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, literally, better translated, has been begotten of God, clearly not in the same sense that Jesus is the only begotten Son. Jesus alone is God's eternally begotten and divine Son. But whoever of us believes that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah has been born of God, born again into the family of God, born spiritually alive such that it can be said we have been begotten of, uh, of God and we are sons and daughters of the living God. It's incredible. Now, please notice the way that John writes this. You believe now, that's in the present tense, you believe now because you have been, that's perfect tense, that's something that happened in the past with ongoing effect, because at some point in the past, you were born again. You were made alive. John seems to say, do not miss this, the reason that you believe, the reason that you have faith is because you have been born again. Born of the will of God, born or regenerated or made alive by the Spirit. Let me say it this way. You could not have ever believed without being born again. Dead people don't do anything. I've done lots of funerals in my ministry, and one thing is the same in every funeral I've ever done. As the coffin is here in the front, the corpse does nothing. Because corpses are dead. And you needed to be made alive in Christ in order to believe. This is what John is saying. And this is meant to be an encouragement to us. Have you ever wondered about your salvation? Have you ever thought, have I, have I really been saved? Have I really been born again? Well, here you go. 
Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh to die for your sins? If you do, then you have been born again. You can put away any doubt. Otherwise, here's the, here's the point. You would not have believed that Jesus is the Christ. I, you would not believe it today. I, I, I've often heard the, that assurance of salvation, particularly in 1 John, does not necessarily come from a past profession, but rather a present confession. What does that mean? It means that you know that you have been saved, born again in the past, by your current present confession of Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, died on the cross for your sins? Then you have been born again. But don't ho-hum that. That is the very center of of the Christian faith. Now to be the Christ means that Jesus is the anointed one, the one chosen um, uh, and sent by God to atone for the sins of his people, to be the Savior, to be the Redeemer, to be indeed Lord. You may remember one day while he was in his hometown in Nazareth, Jesus goes to the synagogue and they give him, they hand in the prophet Isaiah to read. And he turns to Isaiah chapter 61, and he reads, The Spirit of God has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted and to bind up the brokenhearted. Basically, to do the work of the Messiah. This was seen as a messianic text, a Christological text. This is what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to be the anointed one, and he's going to do the work. And on that day, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back, and he said, Today, this is fulfilled in your eyes. I am the anointed one. I am the Christ. Of course, they took him out to a cliff to throw him off. Again, the central tenet of the Christian faith is the belief that Jesus, you know, Mary's son was the chosen one, the anointed one, the Christ. Such was the claim of his followers and even his detractors during his ministry. Jesus claimed to be the Christ. His followers claimed that he was the Christ. His detractors tried to deny that he was the Christ. Luke chapter 4, Jesus was casting out demons. And as they came out, they shouted, you are the son of God. And we read that Jesus rebuked them, not allowing them to speak any further because they knew he was the Christ. I'm going to come back to that at the end of our time. John chapter 4. Jesus met with a woman at the well in Samaria. It's one of my very favorite stories. Allow me to share it briefly. I actually have the word briefly written. I don't know why. It's not brief. (laughs) Jesus and his disciples traveled through Samaria, which was unusual. Jews normally skirted Samaria when they traveled from Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, in the south, to go up to Galilee in the north. In between those two was Samaria. They would not go through Samaria. They would cross the Jordan, go over here to the area of the Decapolis or or, or the Ten Cities or Perea. That's Gentile territory. They would go over there just to not go through Samaria. Why? Because Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Talk about racial prejudice. Can I just take an aside real quick and say with all of this racial tension and racial challenge that is going on in our world today, and it is real, can I say to you that there is only one answer, and his name is Jesus. Jesus went through Samaria. 
because he had an important appointment. They arrived at Sychar at the base of Mount Gerizim, and the disciples went into town to buy some food. Jesus presumably was exhausted from the journey, so he sat down at Jacob's well. It was about noon, and a Samaritan woman came to, to draw water. This, too, was unusual. It, it, you usually came to the well early in the morning or late in the evening. Not, you didn't come in the heat of the day, and women normally did this in groups. You would not do this alone. Jesus, sitting at the well, looked at her and said, give me a drink. This, too, was highly unusual. You see, this woman had three strikes against her. First, she was a woman, and men did not talk to women in public. Second, she was a Samaritan, and Jews had no associations with Samaritans. And third, we are going to find that she was an immoral woman, and religious Jews, holy Jews, would certainly not engage with a immoral woman. By the way, let me take just another quick aside. When we hear that Christianity or Jesus demeans women, understand nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus highly valued women and elevated them in in a society that did not, and we should do the same. We should highly value women. Jesus did. Well, the woman was surprised by his request, so she said, basically, <laughs> you got to be confused, Jew. You're in the wrong part of town, and I'm the wrong kind of person uh, to be talking to. Basically, she says, take a hike. See, in a limited sense, this woman already realized her own unworthiness. Society, you see, had been quick to remind her. Even her own people had nothing to do with her. She was a, an, an outcast, a social pariah. Move on, Jew. You're making a big mistake. You don't know who I am. To which Jesus will say, you don't know who I am. She's exactly where Jesus wanted her. So he said to her, if you knew the gift of God and and who it was, if you knew who I was, who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And Jesus here begins the sweet work of evangelism. He had intentionally, he had made his way through Samaria for this appointment at this well because he had intentionally selected the most unworthy recipient, perhaps on the planet, to be the recipient of divine grace. Does anybody need to hear that? Of course, she doesn't know it. She's confused. She's thinking only in the, <laughs> in the physical realm. Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where, where then do you get that living water? Be sure to note the sarcasm in her voice. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Uh, yes, we know that he was, that he is, and so he begins to reel her in some more. Uh, he has to be thinking you're just like Nicodemus you're only thinking in the physical everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again but whoever drinks of the water I give him shall never thirst and the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life he says I'm not talking about H2O I'm talking about a spiritual eternal soul satisfying drink 
That's exactly what she needed. It may be what you need. And don't forget, this is the story is taking place in John chapter 4, which comes, oddly enough, right after John chapter 3. Jesus had just finished his conversation with that highly respected teacher of the Jews. We call him Nicodemus. The very next conversation is this one. With Nicodemus, Jesus communicated the truth that everyone, including you, Nicodemus, must be born again. And now in the very next conversation, it's with this immoral Samaritan woman. We don't even know her name. Two completely different people. Nicodemus was extremely religious. The woman at the well, well, she's a Samaritan, so she followed an aberrant form of Judaism. He was educated. She uneducated. He was holy, a Pharisee. She, well, quite immoral. He was a Jew. She, a Samaritan. He was rich. She, poor. He was highly respected. She, despised. He was a teacher. She was... She was nobody. But you know her story, don't you? Because Jesus picked her. He was demonstrating the gospel. This being born again is for everyone, from religious Jewish aristocracy to dirty Samaritan outcast. It's the same wonderful message for any and every kind of sinner. She's still thinking in the physical, but she does move from the disinterested, don't, don't talk to me, to the sarcastic, you have no way to draw this living water, to mild interest, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come, have to come all this way to draw. Probably a bit sarcastic, probably a, a still thinking in the physical. Fine, she says, if you can provide this kind of living water so that I never have to get thirsty and never have to make this long walk to the well by myself, I'm game. Give it to me. She has some sense of her physical need, but now Jesus exposes her spiritual need, her spiritual thirst. He begins the process of exposing her sin with this request. Go, call your husband, and come here. What? That seems like a bit of a right turn. It's a bit abrupt. doesn't seem to fit the flow of the conversation. But here's the point. Now that she's shown some interest, Jesus is trying to do two things, to expose her need and to explain that he has the ability to meet that need. It's very important. You do understand that salvation is being delivered from sin and its mastery over us and from the consequent judgment and punishment to come. This woman is beginning to to be awakened to her thirst. And Jesus wants her to understand her real spiritual thirst. So he says to her, go call your husband. Now, we know the story, perhaps familiar with it. We've read it. We know that, uh, that she had had five husbands, and the one with whom she was living was not her husband. But she, <laughs> she doesn't volunteer that information. Truth is, most of us don't volunteer our sin. But sin we have. And hers and ours, miserable, immoral life. 
At this point, Jesus and the woman have a conversation about worship, both the place and the heart of worship. Uh, there's coming a day you won't worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but my worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. I won't get into all of that, but the light at this point is becoming to get brighter. She seems to understand salvation comes uh, to people, even people like me who have a need, the need to be forgiven and the need to be reconciled to God. I understand salvation. It will no longer be tied to a place. Rather, it's going to be found in, in the heart. It's all still a bit confusing, a bit different than she'd heard all of her, all of her life. She thought Mount Gerizim was the place, so she says, I, she, she says, listen, this is confusing. I know that Messiah, that is Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will declare all things to us. He's going he's gonna to clear all this up. He's going to make this understandable. The, the Christ will make all things clear. Notice now this disinterest and sarcasm are gone. Jesus has reeled her in. She knows her need, and she understands salvation leading to, to worship comes from the heart. She's still a bit confused, so she appeals to this coming Christ. Well, when he comes, the Christ, whoever he is, he's going to explain all of this to us. And Jesus says these startling words to her. The reason I told this whole story, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm here to offer you salvation, and it comes through believing that I am the Christ and everything that goes with that. Do you believe that in your miserable life? I'll let you read the rest of the story. It's a wonderful story in John 4. John was one of the disciples who went into Samaria and came back to see him talking with this woman. He knew this Story And so in 1 John chapter 5, he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, like Nicodemus, like the Samaritan outcast whose name we do not know, is born of God. That's what it is to be a Christian. I want to say to you very gently this morning, it is not about going to church. If the extent of your Christianity is this hour and 15 minutes on Sunday mornings, you are missing the glory of the Christian faith. You're, you're missing Jesus as your greatest treasure. It isn't about being good. It's about throwing yourself at the mercy of God. It's about realizing you've had five husbands and the one you live isn't your husband. Whatever your sin is, throwing yourself at the mercy of God. Do you believe that? Peter believed it. Caesarea Philippi, one day Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say? that I am. And Peter responded, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Later, when Jesus is being interrogated by Jewish leadership, tell us plainly whether you are the Christ. That's the question. The Son of God. How did Jesus answer? Got it right. You've said it yourself. Nevertheless, the next time you see me, Mr. High Priest, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God coming in the clouds of glory. That is a direct quote of Daniel chapter 7, which is another messianic or Christological prophecy. The high priest tears his robe and yells, blasphemy, what more do we need to condemn him? My point is this. Those who believed knew that Jesus was the Christ. Those who didn't believe knew that he claimed to be the Christ and actively sought to deny it. Even Jesus himself said it, I am the Christ. 
the Son of the living God. Here is the question this morning. Do you believe that? That is what it means to be a Christian. If you do, John says you've been born again. And I want to say to you, if you have never confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, you can do that right now. Right where you sit. You can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Brings us quickly, and I do mean quickly or briefly, to the effects of being born again. I say quickly because John has covered most of this already through the letter. What are the effects of this being born again? There are five, not to worry. We've already covered the first one. Having been born again, you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Second, having been born again results in brotherly love. John says it this way at the end of verse 1, whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. In other words, having been born again, believing in Jesus, you love both the Father and all of those who have been born of God. You love the Christian family. Does this sound familiar? It should. Interestingly, in verse 2, he kind of switches it. Lots of people are scratch their head about that. Uh, it says there, um, uh, it, uh, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commands. And you go, wait a minute, he's been saying it the opposite way. The whole point is it doesn't matter. This all goes together. If you love God, you love His people. If you love His people, you love God. Because if you love His people, if you don't love His people, you wouldn't love God. You see how he just, it's all so intertwined. This is who we are as followers of Christ. So the first effect of being born again is believing in Jesus. Second effect is loving God and loving one another. Again, I hope you're seeing a pattern. Third effect is found in verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. All three effects of being born again are simply passing the test that He has been giving to us over and over again. He simply says it in a different way. You have been born again if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you love the Christian family, and you obey His commands. Next effect is the end of verse 3. It's a bit intriguing, deeply encouraging. It's what JP referred to. If you have been born again, you will keep His commandments, and those commandments, by the way, which are not burdensome. Now, now, now people look at Christians and say, you guys are under such a heavy weight of rules, of, of commands. No, 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 no. They're not heavy. They actually, keeping His commands bring us great joy. You see, God is a good God and His commandments are for our good. Before we were born again, dead in trespasses and sin, breaking His commandments was all that we could do. It was all that we wanted to do. Sure, that brought pain and misery, but we didn't have, we had neither the, the ability nor the desire to do anything else but to disobey. But now, having been made alive in Christ, having received His Holy Spirit, we have the ability to obey. And by doing so, we find, listen to me, this is incredible, we find greatest joy. You know that to be true, Right? As a follower of Jesus, when you obey, you find joy, and when you disobey, that's when you don't have joy. We're reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, my wife's favorite text. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You mean, I can find rest? You can for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you, are you tired of trying and failing 
Are you tired of the misery of your sin? Come to Jesus. Believe in Him and find that following Christ is the best life that you can live. You, you, you will find great joy. His yoke is easy and His way, His burden is light. It is for your good and for His glory. Final effect of being born again, of being born in the family of God is we overcome the world. Verse 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. He uses the word whatever, actually not whoever, NAS has it right, whatever, to point to the fact that it is not us who overcome, but it is God and us being born again. Those born again gain victory, present and future, to overcome the world and all of its enticements and temptations. Remember back in chapter 2, he said, don't love the world because all that is is false enticement. Don't let, all it is is the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Don't, don't, don't pursue that. Follow Jesus and you can overcome. You, you can overcome those temptations. That's what he's saying here. Verse 5, who is the one who overcomes? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He's simply saying this. You can overcome evil. You can overcome the world. You can overcome even these false teachers because you have been born again. Let me close with this idea of believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Remember, I said in Luke chapter 4 that we would come back to it. The devils, the devils believe that. In, in James chapter, uh, chapter 2, they, they believe that, that God is, is one and they, they tremble. Here's my point. Faith is not simply knowing the right things. Faith is trusting Him. Trust, when it says we believe in Christ, it is who Jesus is and all that He has done. It is trusting Jesus for yourself. I am gravely concerned that churches are filled every Sunday morning with people who know the truth, who have never embraced the truth for themselves. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, the true faith is when we fly to Christ and embrace Him. Have you done that? Do you believe?